You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode 127 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we talked about how, after the Union defeat at First Manassas in July 1861, George B. McClellan was placed in command of federal forces in and around Washington, and how he immediately threw himself into the task of restoring order and discipline and building an army. In August, McClellan formally conferred upon his command the name it would carry through the hardest fighting of the Civil War, the Army of the Potomac. The Army responded by giving to McClellan its wholehearted devotion. Little Mac made the volunteers feel like real soldiers, and at review after glorious review in the fall of 1861, the men of the Army of the Potomac shouted themselves hoarse, cheering for McClellan. At first, the 34-year-old McClellan had also received heapings of praise from Lincoln, from the Cabinet, and from Congress. After the disaster at Bull Run, McClellan had arrived in Washington to a hero's welcome, and very quickly the adulation he received and his new assignment went to his head. McClellan brought a massive ego with him to Washington. He acquired a bigger one upon arrival. During those first weeks in Washington, McClellan developed what can only be called a Messiah complex. He wrote to his wife of his belief that, quote, God has placed a great work in my hands. I was called to it. My previous life seems to have been unwittingly directed to this great end, end quote. McClellan soon became convinced that God had not only called him to the great work of saving the Union, but that there were obstacles placed in his path. The first obstacle McClellan identified was Winfield Scott, the old general-in-chief of the Union's armies. Scott's age, obesity, and infirmities were in striking contrast to the energy and charisma of the younger McClellan. McClellan coveted Winfield Scott's job, and the younger general bypassed Scott frequently, communicating directly with the president and members of the cabinet. Serious personal and professional tensions soon developed between the old titan and the young upstart. One of the biggest bones of contention between McClellan and Scott turned out to be one of Little Mac's main defects as a military commander, his alarmist tendency to inflate enemy strength. McClellan's chronic overestimation of Confederate numbers is often attributed to Alan Pinkerton, who was the head of McClellan's intelligence-gathering section. But although Pinkerton does deserve some of the blame, he was only reinforcing McClellan's own tendency in this regard. As summer turned into autumn, and as McClellan devoted more time and energy to undermining Winfield Scott, 
than he did to marching against the rebels, several Republican congressional leaders and broad segments of the northern press grew restless with the Army of the Potomac's inactivity. There was fine campaigning weather that fall, and many people openly questioned why McClellan continued to train his expanding army and to hold impressive reviews, but did nothing to advance against the nearby Confederates in northern Virginia. McClellan was stung by this criticism, but throughout the autumn of 1861, he steadfastly refused to march against the rebels, and instead claimed he would move according to his own timetable. And so, rather than taking the field against the Confederate Army, McClellan stayed in Washington and continued to pull every string he could find to get himself appointed Winfield Scott's successor. Though many in the North were becoming increasingly dismayed by McClellan's inaction, on the other side of the lines, the Confederates in Northern Virginia were initiating precious little of their own. In the months following the rebel victory at First Manassas, Jefferson Davis, like Lincoln, was aware that many people on the Southern home front were demanding that the main Confederate army do something. But the Confederate president realized that as summer turned into autumn, the army simply wasn't strong enough or equipped properly to undertake a major offensive movement against the growing number of federal troops in and around Washington. And besides that, Davis's relations with his two top generals in the field were souring. The general hailed throughout the South as the hero of Manassas was the already popular hero of Fort Sumter, P.G.T. Beauregard. Charismatic and highly visible, Beauregard relished the role of hero and immediately set to work to improve on it. Beauregard, however, seemed to go out of his way to improve his own reputation at Jefferson Davis's expense, and this, as you might expect, did not endear him to Davis. Beauregard's behavior resulted in a series of increasingly personal and unpleasant exchanges between the two men, until finally Davis sent Beauregard west to serve under Albert Sidney Johnston. While the feud between Davis and Beauregard was heating up, the Confederate president's relations with the other hero of Manassas, Joseph E. Johnston, were also deteriorating. Like McClellan, Joe Johnston was extremely cautious, beloved by his soldiers, and would have a dysfunctional relationship with his commander-in-chief. Johnston was a proud man, and had felt insulted when he was not named the senior, highest-ranking Southern general on the list that Jefferson Davis had submitted to the Confederate Congress. Johnston would carry this grudge with him for the rest of the war. In the short term, he would take to completely ignoring Jefferson Davis, to the point that the president was largely in the dark as to his top field commander's thoughts and actions. In late September, Johnston concluded that some of his forward positions were vulnerable to McClellan's growing army, and he began pulling back. On September 27th, he evacuated Munson's Hill, his outpost nearest Washington, and fell back to Fairfax Courthouse. Then on October 17th, he withdrew from Fairfax Courthouse and began consolidating his 40 or so thousand men in the area of Centerville and Manassas Junction. Word of these Confederate retrograde movements came as a pleasant surprise to George McClellan. His men occupied the abandoned rebel positions without firing a shot, and in the process considerably deepened the Federal foothold on the Confederate side of the Potomac. 
But then McClellan noticed an outlying enemy position that had not yet been abandoned. This was at Leesburg, Virginia, about 35 or 40 miles up the Potomac from Washington. The Confederate position at Leesburg represented the far left of Joe Johnston's line, and McClellan thought that given the rebels' recent withdrawals, perhaps a show of force by the Federals might, quote, shake the enemy out of Leesburg, end quote. That notion would come back to haunt McClellan, since it sparked a chain of events that led to the Union disaster at Ball's Bluff on October 21st. As some of you will recall, we covered the Battle of Ball's Bluff back in episode number 73. The fiasco at Ball's Bluff, which, in the grand scheme of things, was only a little fight with no strategic significance, nevertheless, the humiliating defeat at Ball's Bluff only increased McClellan's caution and renewed his determination not to commit his army to battle until he knew that he had such an overwhelming force that victory was the only possibility. On October 25th, four days after the battle, McClellan met for three hours with a group of angry senators. They were searching for a scapegoat, and they demanded an advance of the Army of the Potomac to atone for the embarrassing defeat at Ball's Bluff. But that night, McClellan calmly denied responsibility for the disaster and managed to divert the wrath of the senators by arguing that Winfield Scott was the real problem. McClellan implied that the old general-in-chief was an impediment to active operations and that an offensive was impossible as long as Scott remained in charge. The senators were convinced. They put pressure on the president, and less than a week later, Lincoln accepted Scott's offer of retirement, which had first been tendered back in August. Winfield Scott wanted Henry Halleck to be his successor, but Lincoln turned instead to McClellan. On November 1st, the president designated Little Mac general-in-chief of the Union's armies. The post was obviously an enormous responsibility, especially since McClellan did not intend to give up personal command of the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln worried about whether McClellan could shoulder the entire load, but the new general-in-chief harbored no doubts in his own abilities. He told the president, quote, I can do it all. Two days later, on the morning of November 3rd, McClellan got up at 4 a.m. and, with his staff and a squadron of cavalry, rolled through the darkness and pouring rain to see Winfield Scott off the train station. In the station, the two generals exchanged pleasantries. Scott sent special regards to Mrs. McClellan and her new baby. Then the old warrior was helped aboard the train for New York. The scene in the station made an impression on McClellan. Later that day, he wrote to his wife, quote, I saw there the end of a long, active, and ambitious life, the end of the career of the first soldier of his nation, and it was a feeble old man, scarce able to walk, hardly anyone there to see him off but his successor. Should I ever become vainglorious and ambitious, remind me of that spectacle. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the autumn of 1861, even while McClellan maneuvered to replace Winfield Scott as General-in-Chief, the relationship between Little Mac and Lincoln began to fray. As we've mentioned before, when the Civil War came, Lincoln and McClellan weren't strangers. The two men had known each other in Illinois when McClellan was vice president of the Illinois Central Railroad, and Lincoln was a lawyer who was sometimes retained as counsel to the railroad. McClellan later wrote, quote, I have been with Lincoln in out-of-the-way county seats where some important case was being tried, and in the lack of sleeping accommodations, have spent the night in front of a stove listening to the unending flow of anecdotes from his lips. The anecdotes were often as rough-hewn as the man telling them, and both the tales and the teller rubbed the blue-blooded McClellan the wrong way, although he did admit the stories, quote, were always to the point, end quote. But while McClellan could see that the fellow was a competent attorney, he viewed Lincoln then, in the late 1850s, as he viewed him four years later in Washington, as his social, intellectual, and moral inferior. Aside from his view of Lincoln as inferior to himself, McClellan also parted with Lincoln when it came to politics. In the campaign for the Senate seat that pitted Lincoln, the Republican, against Stephen Douglas, the Democrat, McClellan marshaled the not-inconsiderable resources of the Illinois Central behind Douglas's bid for re-election. When the war and Lincoln's summons to McClellan in July of 1861 brought the two men together again in Washington, there were early efforts by the president to strike a genuine friendship with the general. But McClellan clearly resented the fact that a politician and amateur strategist like Lincoln would dare to offer advice to a professional soldier about military matters. The commander of the Army of the Potomac wouldn't countenance such interference, and McClellan's tone in his references and dealings with Lincoln began to shift markedly in the fall of 1861. Little Mac believed strongly that war should be left strictly to the professional military men and that politicians couldn't understand it and shouldn't be permitted to run it. McClellan's mindset, both his sincere belief that he'd been appointed by God to save the Union, and his certainty that politicians, at least Republicans, weren't fit to run the war, gave added urgency to his campaign to replace Winfield Scott as general-in-chief. Once he achieved his goal of supplanting Scott, McClellan expected Lincoln to trust him to do the right thing with regard to strategy and the Union's armies, especially the Army of the Potomac. But to Little Mac's intense irritation, Lincoln began dropping by his headquarters near the White House almost daily to consult with him. The new general-in-chief came to resent these visits as a waste of time. He admitted to his wife that more than once he hid himself away, quote, to dodge all enemies in shape of browsing president, etc. 
Perhaps the culmination of McClellan's sense of self-importance came on the evening of November 13th, when the President, Secretary of State Seward, and Lincoln's Secretary John Hay called unannounced on McClellan at home, but learned that he was at a wedding. Told that the general would return shortly, the three men waited in the parlor. When Little Mac returned home by the back door an hour later, he was informed that Lincoln was waiting to see him, but he made no reply and went upstairs. The President, Secretary of State, and Hay waited another half hour before a servant finally told them that McClellan had gone to bed. Hay was furious at this slight to the Commander-in-Chief, but as they walked back to the White House, Lincoln told him that it was, quote, better at this time not to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity, end quote. Significantly, though, from then on, the president almost always summoned McClellan to the White House when he wanted to talk to him. After one such occasion four days later, McClellan wrote to his wife that at the executive mansion, quote, I found the original gorilla about as intelligent as ever. What a specimen to be at the head of our affairs, end quote. McClellan continued to show neither comprehension of nor sympathy for the political considerations that were inextricably linked to the conduct of the war. McClellan had led the senators to believe that if they would help rid him of Winfield Scott, he would advance on the enemy with the Army of the Potomac. But in the days since Scott departed, there was still no sign of movement. Lincoln was under intense political pressure. The northern public was restless for the new general-in-chief to take the field and engage the rebels. By late November, the Army of the Potomac was almost 170,000 strong, but still McClellan refused to act. As little McClellan continued to hold fast to his own timetable, the radical Republicans in Congress were becoming more and more unhappy. They had begun to suspect that McClellan's politics— his democratic politics, were figuring into the delay, and they became increasingly suspicious of his motives. In many of their minds, his being a Democrat was worse than the inactivity of the army. They deplored commanders who held political views contrary to their own, generals who favored a policy of conciliation with the rebels. And to their way of thinking, anyone who wanted to be so carefully prepared before going into battle was either a coward or not man enough to do the job, the job being to wage an immediate, hard-handed, and destructive war on the Southern slave power. To the radical Republicans, McClellan appeared to be in the clutches of all these unfortunate traits. Lincoln shielded McClellan, as best he could, from an increasingly unfriendly Congress and restless public, but the President was also dismayed by the General's seeming lack of initiative and Lincoln could shield McClellan only so much and for so long. In early December, a handful of radical Republicans decided to take a more direct role in influencing the course of the war, and they, with a few like-minded Democrats, formed the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Benjamin Wade, the committee's chairman, frankly admitted its intention was to, quote, frighten the Lincoln administration and the reticent McClellan into action. One of the first witnesses the new committee called was McClellan himself, but on December 20th, three days before he was to appear, he came down with a severe case of typhoid fever. It was bad timing all around. The public clamor for action was at its peak. The radical Republicans were on the prowl. McClellan's headquarters was paralyzed without him, 
The army sat in its winter quarters. All was quiet along the Potomac. Nothing was happening, and there was no telling when anything might be done. And no one was more upset over all of this than Abraham Lincoln. During this time, the president was also preoccupied with the diplomatic crisis over the seizure of Confederate envoys Mason and Slidell from the British mail packet Trent. The release of the Confederates improved Anglo-American relations, but left a sour taste in the mouths of many Northerners, and Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase was alarmed at how fears of war with Britain had led to a steep drop-off in the sale of bonds to finance the war against the Confederacy. The whole affair deepened Lincoln's despondency at the end of 1861. Other than the capture of Port Royal along the South Carolina coast in November, nothing good seemed to be happening anywhere, east or west. Little had happened since McClellan had become general-in-chief two months before and told the president, I can do it all. A growing exasperation and a frustration over lost opportunities were gnawing at the long-suffering president's mind. It was around this time that Lincoln is said to have described the Army and McClellan as, quote, an admirable engineer, but he seems to have a special talent for a stationary engine, end quote. As the calendar rolled over from 1861 to 1862, and as little Mac continued to lie in his sickbed through the early days of the new year, Lincoln wandered into Quartermaster General Montgomery Miggs' office on January 10th and sat dejectedly before the fire. Lincoln asked Miggs, General, what shall I do? The people are impatient. Chase has no money, and he tells me he can raise no more. The general of the army has typhoid fever. The bottom is out of the tub. What shall I do? That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is McClellan's War, The Failure of Moderation in the Struggle for the Union by Ethan S. Rafuse. This is an interesting study of McClellan in that Rafuse really does his due diligence in examining the influences, uh, cultural and political, that shaped McClellan's behavior as a general. And that behavior sorely frustrated Lincoln and others to no end, but Rafuse shows that there was a definite logic behind how McClellan went about exercising command. At any rate, if the controversy over McClellan intrigues you and you want to read a book that tries to offer a balanced, fair judgment of Little Mac's conduct, then Ethan Rafuse's study of McClellan is for you. So that's McClellan's War by Ethan S. Rafuse, and you can find it and all of our other book recommendations in a handy list on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we want to give a special shout-out to Steve A. in Australia, Thomas P. in New Jersey, and Andrew M. in New York for the donations this past week. Andrew, wow, thank you for your very generous gift. And thank you to a new member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Thomas C. Uh, then, with regard to the Strawfoot Brigade and the members' episodes, we have a, I guess, programming announcement. Uh, as some of you know, the podcast is set to turn three years old here shortly, and that milestone, uh, along with the 15 episodes it took us to cover Shiloh, led us to realize once again that we're going to be doing this project for a while. 
that even if we just stick to the major campaigns and battles and then carry through with our plan to also cover Reconstruction, then, yeah, we're going to be at this for a while. So what we think we're going to do from here on out is use the members' episodes to cover some events and topics that we were originally planning on covering in the regular episodes. And this will help us streamline the timeline quite a bit. Streamline the timeline. That's what it's all about. So for the most part, we'll devote the regular episodes to the major campaigns and battles uh, for the rest of the war and use the members' episodes to explore some other actions and activities. Uh, for example, this, mo- uh, this month's members' episodes are going to be about Island Number 10, and with next month's, we'll look at the Fall of New Orleans, which are both events that we had originally planned to cover in regular episodes, but now we aren't, because we want to... Streamline the timeline. Yep, uh, so there you go. Although we'll still probably take a year covering the Gettysburg campaign when we get to it. Well, even with streamlining the timeline, it'll be a while before we get to Gettysburg. So for now, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue laying out the background to McClellan's Peninsula campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.